Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I caught up with Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith, who is the Australian Government's Women in STEM Ambassador, as well as a Professor of Practice at the University of New South Wales. In her role as Women in STEM Ambassador, Lisa is responsible for increasing the participation of women and girls in science, technology, engineering and maths. I wanted to deep dive into her thoughts on how we as an industry can increase the recruitment of women into the field, as well as inspire a younger generation of schoolgirls. Lisa adds a lot of food for thought for leaders to consider when hiring, as well as managers who are looking for ways to incentivize and retain their female talent. Lisa, welcome. I I really uh, appreciate you coming on my podcast today and I'm interested to hear more about your thoughts because a lot of the conversation that we are going to dive into today, I think in my experience, a lot of people ask me a lot in the industry and and I sort of give my opinion, but because you're doing this day in day out in regards to STEM I'm I'm really interested and keen on hearing your thoughts and understanding how executives can go about implementing perhaps some of the wisdom that you'll give today but before we dive into that I'd love to start off by talking about you and your journey so can Mm. you please walk our listeners through your career like where you started and, and what you're doing now? Sure thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great to talk about these subjects and, um, it's, it's maybe a little strange where I, where I come from because I started off as an astrophysicist and I've had, you know, 15 years industry experience, um, written 49 peer reviewed papers in astrophysics journals about black holes and, um, the birth and death of stars in our galaxy and and all sorts of things but um i really just started falling in love with the night sky when i was a child and uh, and you know when we give when we think about kids and we think about their education and the opportunities they have there's really simple stuff that we can do um to give kids real life learning experiences you know actually looking at the stars with them um you know actually de- delving into questions and um and and talking to kids uh, and that really helped me to find a passion um, for astronomy. So that's sort of where I've come from. Um, in terms of career, um, I did a, a master's degree in, in astronomy and astrophysics, a PhD in astrophysics, and, and was really focused on um, radio telescopes and how they can help us to understand the universe. So I started off researching the birth of stars, went into um, major international research organizations and um, started getting involved in actually developing new telescopes as well. So not just understanding how to use telescopes, but actually developing new ones, uh, more powerful ones. And of course, the the computing infrastructure behind that, which is really fascinating. Um, in fact, the the last project I worked on in Australia, the Australian SKA Pathfinder, which is a precursor to the Square Kilometre Array, this giant international uh, global project to build the world's most powerful radio telescope, um, you know, requires on-site massive computing uh, power. Um, it's streaming 72 terabits per second of data um, in a very m- remote area of Australia and streaming part of those data down to um, the Pawsey Supercomputing Centre in Perth. And distributing data like that across the country and across the world is is one of our big challenges. So really, um, beyond astronomy, I've learned a lot about um, engineering and also um, distributed data um, as well. So lots of fun challenges in my career. But now I've moved on to a new challenge, which is trying to increase the participation of women and girls in in STEM, science, technology, engineering and math subjects, which, of course, are some of the fastest growing um, skill sets required by all industries, even, you know, from from the arts to, to music and uh, technology to infrastructure, advanced manufacturing. Um, so many industries now require these skills that um, we're really looking at an opportunity to increase the participation of women and girls in particular uh, through upskilling, reskilling and improving the pathways for women. And um, it, it's a really exciting job and a lot to get my teeth into. I've been doing a lot of research lately in a book that I read recently. It's just that a lot of 
uh, students in general are not even taking advanced mathematics as one of the insights. But then I guess the other side of that is a lot of uh, women are not doing any of these types of subjects at a high level. Like, what do you think is the reasoning for that? And I think, I think that could be because you've got jobs out there like influencers. So I, I, I feel that maybe women are exposing themselves to, the, to these girls that are on social media, they look gorgeous, and then they're getting paid a whole bunch of money to do that. And then as a result of that, like STEM perhaps isn't as attractive or sexy. So what do you sort of think of from that point of view? Yeah, there are so many um, cultural uh, influences on the uptake of STEM education. In fact, when you when you look at um, the data from you know reports like the Women in STEM Decadal Plan, ten year plan that that we created a couple of years ago to try and increase women's uh, participation, you, you can see that um, in Australia and other similar countries, industrialized countries, English speaking countries. Um, the number of women doing engineering um, and IT is absolutely tiny. It's minuscule, um, you know, less than 10% in many in many ways of counting. Now, if you look at um, engineering in China and India, the majority of engineers are women in those mm. countries. So that just highlights the, the extremely cultural influence on what subjects um, girls and boys choose in schools uh, and, you know, the things you alluded to, the the sort of, um, I guess, uh, role modelling that, that we we require is is another important part of this. Um, but really there are lots of other subtle effects as well in society. Um, there was a study, um, a US study of parents and how they talked to two-year-olds, their, their children, when they were two years old. Um, and parents were talking about counting and numbers three times more frequently with their boys than they were with their girls aged two years old. So even at that very young age, um, the way we speak to children, the subjects that we encourage them to take an interest in um, and the sorts of conversations we're having are very different. So all of these things are having um, contribute uh, to, to the really big differences we see then from year six onwards in, in children's interest. So just going back to the example around the parents and the two-year-old, do you think it's just because it's engendered into the adults in terms of it's not like they're they're actively thinking, oh, I'm going to get my son to count more versus my daughter. I think it's just perhaps maybe how they grew up so they don't see any difference perhaps. So I guess it goes back to that cultural thing you were just talking about before. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's cultural, it's habitual, um, you know, when kids go to a – uh, the shops, the boys have clothes to choose from with dinosaurs on the front and spaceships and the girls have rockets, uh, <laughs> not rockets, the girls have um, you know, unicorns and princesses and all of that is we're seeing again and again. We see it every day. We see it on TV. We see it in the national curriculum in schools. Um, everything that we're being taught is that there are boys subjects and girls subjects and everything we see about adults um, is sort of reinforcing that. So um, it's very pervasive. Um, it takes time and it takes a little bit of um, circumspect thought about how we can remove these barriers in, in schools, in, in mm. homes, in society, in the media um, and in popular culture and, of course, within industry too. No, that's really interesting because I recently read that Australia needs 6.5 million more digital workers by 2025. And I guess that was a report commissioned by AWS. And I guess they sort of they alluded to it was 79% on top of today's workers. So that that's quite a, uh, mm. a large number. And so I'm curious from your point of view with the work that you do, like what's the plan for this? And how are we as a nation going to address these concerns in order to fuel this demand? Because a lot of the conferences that I go to, it's like, how do we get more people in security? But then how do we get more women in security? And I, I don't, I think people give, they give answers, but then I feel like people do a lot of talking and a lot of walking and I'm a person of action. So I'd really love to hear your thoughts on people that are listening to this. Like what can they actually do to get the outcome that they keep talking about? Yeah, well, it, it's many layered problem, of course, um, because, you know, people are in the workforce for 40 or 50 years um, <laughs> on average. Mm. And um, of course, if we start now with just schools, 
um, without upskilling, reskilling people who are already in the workforce. Um, it will take a very long time for the change to happen. And by then, <laughs> there may be different skills that people need. Um, so it's really you've got to focus on adults as well as kids. Uh, there is a national curriculum review currently going on, and that is a real opportunity. I believe they're taking um, expressions of interest uh, for um, people to actually suggest um, elements of the curriculum very soon. So um, we've really got to make sure digital skills are embedded in every subject in schools as part of like business as usual, not just as a sort of a separate entity, but that digital school skills are being incorporated into all subjects um, from, you know, sports and science to, to arts. Um, and that, you know, young people are seeing that digital skills are absolutely an integral part of so many industries nowadays. Um, hopefully through COVID, apart from, you know, all the terrible disruption there has been and all, all the the terrible health impacts, um, hopefully remote work can become more of a norm now. Um, mm. So it hopefully will then enable Australia's work- workforce to be a little bit more mobile. Um, actually, matching skills to geography and jobs is a real challenge in Australia. There's a lot of people with qualifications who aren't living in the right places. Um, so so really removing that barrier is going to be quite important. I think unis are post-COVID um, offering a lot more micro-credentials. You're seeing pop-up ads. I don't know if you are on my socials. I'm getting ads mm. for, you know, do a short course on, you know, digital security or cyber mm. or something else. Um, and Really, the problem and the worry that I have is like yours. Um, is this practical? Will someone come out of this course and actually be able to get a job? Will they be ready for a job? Um, are there partnerships? So I spoke a lot to the government last year um, as I was asked to advise them on post-COVID recovery and in terms of getting more women into STEM jobs um, around upskilling and reskilling um, mature age women who have had a career or may have had a career break um, after having children or for other reasons and then want to return to the workforce um, and and thinking about those partnerships so not just education but then putting them into an, an actual job and um, matching businesses mm-hmm. to um, those job seekers um, with with training incorporated so there are lots of new measures through the last um, federal budget like the digital skills find a platform um, which helps Australian workers um, and job seekers and small businesses um, reskill um, through the the recovery period. And also, there are lots of other measures um, like the Careers Transition Assistance, uh, forty one million dollars of funding um, for mature age job seekers to increase digital literacy. We're also looking at other um, programs such as the Women in STEM and Entrepreneurship grants, um, giving mm-hmm. money to programs, you know that. Um, that are matching women with digital skills um, and trying to increase those. So a lot of programs, um, what my team is trying to do is is measure the impact of those programs. And that's a big part of what I'm trying to do, impact measurement. Um, is this working? And then we can review after a year um, whether whether these types of measures are making a difference. Um, so that's that's my sort of approach is very much um, data driven mm-hmm. and uh, hoping that we can we can really shift the dial. Yeah, that's really interesting. In terms of the government, how are they sort of disseminating communications to organisations? Now, I ask this because, for example, like a lot of people in the industry that are trying to upskill, so they're trying to redeploy into cyber, but then you have uh, – either recruitment consultants or talent acquisitions within businesses saying you need like 15 years of experience and all this and all that. And and A, those people don't exist. But then the other side of it is students that have actually got a master's in cybersecurity that can't get a job. So there's a massive surplus of students that can't get the work as a result of not getting a job, they go and study something else. We're actually losing talent because I feel like there needs to be an education piece around the recruitment side of it. And maybe that needs to be driven from the government. But I was hired into security for talent and capability, not for credentials. And that's something now I'm going back mm-hmm. through to get all those credentials. I was probably an anomaly. But for most other people that I speak to, it's fr- it's frustrating for them. And, and I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on how is government trying to educate organisations that they need to see past uh, perhaps someone that doesn't have 10 years of experience in the field, but they're equally as good or if not better than the people that we've currently got. 
Yeah, I, I, I completely hear what you're saying um, in terms of trying to um, recruit for potential talent, um, as you say. That I think really that's on industries to to do that. Um, and in terms of, you know, the, the partnerships that government's trying to um, facilitate, um, I'm, I mean, I, I don't know the details of, of you know, the, how the various departments, I guess, they'll, they'll disseminate that information differently through their mm. through their networks, but um, and through Oz industry. But, um, you know, in terms of big industries, hopefully, there will be programs coming out of this, this budget cycle, um, whereby people can upskill and actually go into work um, in these companies. How, how you link to small businesses, I think that's, that's probably more challenging. Mm. Um, but I certainly can't speak for the government there. But um, it, it is a really important point, because um, understanding the plethora of programs I'm sure is is a bit of a, a rat's nest for especially small businesses and um, you know understanding what's available is is very important too let's hope um, let's hope we can keep trying to get it right so let's go back to the buyer sides of things so I've been working in this space uh, for a while and when I talk to people whether it's in an uber and they ask me like hey what do you do for a job and I tell them cyber and the reaction is that they were surprised. Like I think one Uber driver thought like I look like a musician or something like that. Like I don't fit the mold. And I think the mold that perhaps someone on the street, but when they think about cyber is usually, you know, a dude in a hoodie in a basement. And that's not, <laughs> it's yep. not really the case, right? But <laughs> that's it. That's it. And well, I that... guess it's interesting because I guess part of my belief is that it acts sort of as a deterrent to attracting women in the field because if they're watching shows like Sex in the City, they're in PR, they're in marketing, like they're doing these like sexier fields. But then when you think of cyber, uh, women, I don't think in terms of in, in, to mass to the masses, this is a field that they they think about because it's probably how Hollywood positions it. As in, I have to wear hoodies and I perhaps not a very social person. Now I know a lot of people in the space that do not dress like that, that are heavily social. And I'm just curious of how do we remove that now? Because we've really painted ourselves um, this picture and we backed ourselves into a corner a little bit and now we're trying to move and it's becoming more difficult every day. I t completely agree. I mean, we're trying to prize the media open with a, a, a crowbar at the moment um, in terms of working with them to encourage, for example, the ABC has, has had a drive in the last couple of years to include far more diverse um, figures in their news uh, and reporting. We we have things like databases for women in STEM, the STEM Women Database, um, which is a huge repository of, of hundreds, um, I think they might have hit a thousand even, of women who work in the field um, across the country to try and provide, um, I guess, a, a, a a pool of experts for the media to work with getting into you know how the media actually recruits very much still a superstar superstar driven and stereotype driven industry um, mm -hmm. but trying to work closely with media organizations to get those new faces out um, that can be done on an individual and collective level and and certainly groups I'm involved with are trying to do that it's different though from getting more women as commentators in the media um, and talking about these jobs and why they're important to actually getting the the um the Scully effect going, you know, the Mulder mm. and Scully were in the yep. X Files, and um, Dana Scully was a female character who, um, you know, worked uh, in forensics, and there was a huge explosion of of women studying forensics after that show was was um, right. aired. So it's a real effect if there's a female role model in um, one of these areas, and a positive one at that. We're not talking Big Bang Theory or the IT crowd or one of these um, mm. sort of jokey, stereotypy kind of shows, it makes a huge difference. And, you know, research shows that. So it's about st storytelling. It's about really making an effort as an industry to get into the media and to tell our stories and actually to, you know, make a concerted effort, a commission um, a documentary or commission a show, pitch shows, you know, do what you're doing, podcasts, but outside of the industry as well. Um, mm. I mean, I got sick of this. I got sick and tired of just seeing shelves and shelves of um, 
astronomy books written by men. So I wrote books and now I write books every year and I've written kids books and I'm plotting a new careers book for kids in, in 2022. So mm-hmm. we need to do the legwork and, and getting women's voices out there um, and working with people in the industry to actually get these stories out because the stereotypes, yeah, no, they're very old, they're very worn and they're not helpful. They even put boys off actually um, because that real stereotype that um, people in IT are socially awkward, mm. they work alone, that puts off a lot of great people from the field. And, um, you know, it's it's really narrowing the, the possibilities of what we can achieve as an industry. So what I'm hearing from what you're saying is, I agree, uh, it's definitely doing a disservice in terms of how we're, we're pitching it to people, especially younger people that are absorbing the content. But I guess you're sort of saying that we have to sort of work closer with media organisations. Are they sort of open to uh, people within cyber, like knocking on their door and saying like, hey, I, I believe as an organisation or as an individual, I can help you represent the industry in a, in a, in a better way or help uh, demystify a lot of the a lot of the theories that are in this space, are they sort of very open to that? Yeah, I think people don't realise how open the media industry is to pitches. I mean, that's how it works. Um, but, you know, we learn that if we're not in the media industry. So you can actually just go along with an idea and say, hey, ABC, I'd like to do a regular, you know, tech piece or I'd like to, you know, write articles um, or I'd like to do a podcast for, for your organisation. And, and take that to, to bigger audiences. But, you know, you've got to sort of make quite an effort to do mm. that. It, it's a lot of um, it's a lot of expense and time. But, yeah. but if people do that, um, you know, you, you've got to create those new role models um, for young people who um, are pushing against these stereotypes. And, um, you know, certainly we're, we're doing that with some of our campaigns, which I think we'll talk about later. But, um you know, showing kids that there is a huge diversity of people out there um, doing great jobs and trying to change the world in in good and useful ways is uh, the story they want to hear. Absolutely right. And I'm just even thinking back to when I was in high school, like IT was kind of a thing, but I thought of IT back then as the guy that would come around and like, as like more of a help desk, like level one uh, level two sort of engineer like coming around and like helping you at your school computer so to speak like that was my understanding mm. back then of IT and that's fundamentally different and I think because of people who are friends with me that are not inside the space because I'm in it I feel like I've actually opened up a, a beer conversation that now they're like hey I know this KB chick she's really into it she loves it she lives and breathes it and because of that it's actually made me question a lot of things about it whereas before perhaps they didn't know someone they could just ask these types of questions and it's not readily available in terms of having the right people at the coal phase really articulating a lot of the the stuff that does go on in this space so I think that I really love your thoughts on just going and, and being a little bit more aggressive towards these media guys because I think that they probably are looking for, for people out there that are keen to talk about the industry but not really sure where to look, right? Mm, like nobody knows what cyber is really. Do you, remember when, <laughs> do you remember when Justin Trudeau stunned the world by knowing what a quantum computer was? Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's the basic knowledge that we don't even expect other people to have and why should you expect them to? Like that didn't exist when they were at school. Um, even the concepts barely existed. So understanding um, the level people are at is is the first rule of communication. And writing um, cybersecurity for babies, maybe that's your, your next move. Mm, interesting. Do you think people are ready to hear about cybersecurity? Oh, yeah, definitely. People are interested. People are Interested because buzzwords, it was sort of annoying me AI when I don't know what buzzword means. Yeah, you're like, oh, big data, okay, whatever. And um, what does that actually mean? How does it affect me? Um, you, mm. you demystify it and you bring it into people's focus and you say, actually, this matters because when you don't get all your money stolen from the bank, that's a good thing, right? And people go, oh, yeah, I get this now. You've got to link it to their lives and um, <laughs> yeah, make it relatable, right? Because yeah. like no one cares. Like a company got hacked, so what? So I guess oh, you've got to sort of relate it back to a consumer perspective. And I think one of the challenges that we have in this space is 
a lot of brilliant people that work in this industry, but really struggle on the comm side of it. Like, how do I relay a complex thing into layman terms or into a way in which that the person I'm speaking to and like, like the discourse in which you, you speak and communicate to that person. And I guess that's a big reason why I got into what I'm doing now to uh, become that conduit between the industry and the, and the public and, and, and getting people to understand like why it's important because it is, and it's, it's going to be here forever as long as technology is around. And I think that that's been the challenge for people to, articulate things in a way that doesn't get convoluted and you lose people because they get very detailed and very technical and that that loses like mainstream audiences. That's it. I mean, it's taken me 20 years to know how to speak um, really calmly and confidently at the level of the public about astrophysics and what I do. And, you know, now I can do that regularly on TV and people get it because you, you remember what you didn't know when you didn't know it and you, you speak to that person and that you were. Um, but it takes a lot of practice. And, um, you know, when we're in a technical industry, I mean, jargon is just part of everyday life. You've got a million mm. different um, technical terms and <laughs> anagrams and acronyms and people are just, you oh know, my gosh, yes. it, everything is, is so um, techy, even within, for example, in astrophysics, a radio astronomer like me would have, um, jargon that an optical astronomer wouldn't understand. So how how are we supposed to speak to the public when we can't even speak to each other? <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And sometimes you'd have acronyms that meant the same acronym that would mean like multiple things, but you could get so good if you're in a meeting that you know exactly that's one of the seven, but you know that's which it. one that, that person's out. talking about. From context. <laughs> what, yeah. have some, what have been some of your strategies to sort of getting past you said it takes a lot of practice and it's taken you two decades to sort of be able to speak to a wider audience what are some of your strategies that you've employed in case of people listening out there that are like yes I am super technical uh, I need a better way of communicating to people do, do you have any sort of advice for, for the people listening I think it's just um, practice a lot of it is practice um, and it's really looking at watching it back maybe 10 times as well the first few times it's horrible horrible to hear your own voice horrible to uh, look at your own face everyone I hates know. that but you do it you've got to watch it back and you've got to say if I was speaking you know if I was sitting with um, an eight-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid would they understand that um, and you know the comprehension of most of the general public in terms of technical things is is obviously at a level that you know they haven't had the experience to to study this at a higher level so you've really got to dial it back like 10 10 notches um beyond where you you think you, you should be starting mm. and that, that's probably somewhere about right you you don't talk down to people because they're not stupid and they do care and they are capable of learning and very intelligent um, but they don't know what you're talking about. They don't know where you're coming from and they don't have your life experiences. So it's like talking about anything. You've got to start from the beginning. Start from mm. page one. Explain where you are. Explain why they should care straight up because you'll lose them within 10 seconds otherwise. That's a really interesting point when you talk about don't talk down to people. It's something that I always say, like don't patronize people. Like these, This person that you're speaking to has probably got a PhD in just another field. It doesn't mean that they're an idiot. It just means that they haven't studied it. So, of course, if you're an expert in a field, like it's going to come across easy to you. And I think that's something that the industry's trying to remove, a little bit of that ego, a little bit of arrogance of, well, I've been doing this for so long, like why don't you understand it? And I think that a lot of that probably comes down to uh, naivety but also just understanding like emotional intelligence, how humans are wired, right? Like patronizing someone and putting them down is not really going to influence them into learning more about a, a space that they don't know about. That's it. The, the, the most, um, I guess the biggest driver as well is, is the why. Why are you telling me this um, and what do you want me to go away and do? So you kind of have to have an ask, um, you know, when I'm speaking to the media, what's the motivation for this, firstly, the media to, to put me on a platform to speak and what do I want the audience to go and do afterwards? If there's no, if there's no kind of ask or no call to action, there's very little point in communicating something um, because if you don't want someone to change something, um, I think it's very difficult to motivate people to listen. So if you've got a little bit of an ask, a specific place to send them, go, go and learn this, have a look at this or maybe try this, um, it's a nice way to sort of round off a discussion. 
like to sort of talk to you a little bit more about another direction that I'm curious and love to hear your thoughts in, and it's the neurodiversity. So mm. inside STEM that I believe are grossly underrepresented. And so how much of this do you believe is acultural? And I ask this because look at the work of Simon Baron-Cohen and there's an argument that autism spectrum disorder may drive people just naturally towards STEM fields and ASD is at about the same ratio in men, like 75, 25 as women and then STEM I think is like 25, 75. So I'm really keen to explore your thoughts on this. Yeah, first of all, um, I'll preface all of this with um, – I'm not an expert in this area at all. Um, I have had a look at the research, though. But it, it does remind me some of those arguments that you mentioned around um, Simon Baron Cohen, the researcher into autism. Um, it, it does remind me of some of the arguments, and these are just theories at, at present, um, that uh, the arguments which I completely disagree with and have been discredited, that, that girls are just not interested in STEM. And, and we know that's not true because it's in other cultures. Um, you know, women dominate in engineering and um, it, it just simply isn't true. So I do worry that there are a lot of competing effects here when we look, for example, at um, the fact, this is very gendered, um, that people who are autistic um, are far more likely um, to be diagnosed if they're men than if they're women because the diagnostic tools have been designed around um, men's average presentation and symptoms of um, ASD. So that's just one example where I think there's a, a bit more complexity involved than simply um, there are more autistic men than women. I, again, I'm not an expert, but I suspect there is a lot more work to be done, and that's that certainly comes out in the papers I read. There's also work by Xin Wei et al. Um, in 2013 who found that, as you say, a large gender gap amongst autistic people studying STEM fields. Um, so there's a few parts to this. If people are autistic, they're less likely um, to study post-secondary school. That's um, one fact. But if they do study, 39% um, of male students um, who are autistic choose STEM. So that's a very significant number versus 3% of autistic um, women. So there is a huge, huge mm -hmm. gender gap, again, which is larger than the gap in um, between men and women actually diagnosed with, with autism. So that's really, really interesting. However, I've only seen that one study. So I think there's a lot more work to do, again, to understand the complex interplay between um, differences in diagnosis or lacks, lacking in diagnosis uh, of women with autism. Uh, and also some, you know, probably many other um, different parameters around this. So I think the thing we can do practically, though, apart from do research, because that doesn't actually help it helps us to understand but it doesn't help individual students um we need to take a more intersectional approach um when we talk about education and how education is set up um i was talking to um a group of stem teachers uh, this morning and talking about the different ways um that people respond to education um whether it's rote learning or collaborative learning um doing a project on your own um, or just remembering things. And people who are just good at remembering things are going to pass tests and they're going to progress and they're going to be judged to be good at things. Um, mm -hmm. But when you actually get them in a real workplace and when you get them on real projects um, with an autonomous uh, working environment where they're expected to lead, they're not necessarily going to be comfortable with that. So we need to consider um, an education system where we are assessing all these different skills and being quite explicit about that and helping to support and service people who need to improve in certain areas of those skills um, because all of those skill sets are important in the workplace. But where people are accommodated, um, you know, people can thrive and and do really, really well where, where there may be barriers to their participation. Just mm -hmm. one example of that is um, a story I read recently in the Guardian newspaper about um, a female electrician. She trained um, to be an electrician. That's a very considerable amount of training uh, for four years. Um, and she had very um, 
severe dyslexia. So she had problems with reading and writing and um, she was given um, allowances in her um, examinations so that she could um, take a bit of time in a room on her own to actually mm-hmm. read and comprehend the material. And that enabled her to pass. And now she's wow. a professional. And if she hadn't had that accommodation um, for dyslexia, then she would not be an, engi- uh, an, an electrician. So, you know, small accommodations can make a big difference um, where people have different needs. And I think we've got to really um, understand that people with different needs um, are a great asset to workplaces for for many, many reasons. So hopefully we can move in that direction of being a little bit more flexible in everything we do. Would you say that employers are being a little bit more open to being flexible and accommodating for people who perhaps um, uh, a little bit different in how they approach things so that the, so we're not sort of shutting people out because there is a massive talent pool of people that are underutilized yeah absolutely depends on the culture of the organization and the leadership that's that's down to senior leadership Mm -hmm. and how they communicate to their um you know management uh, structure underneath them um how they communicate and how you um hire people how you promote people and set kpis and it's whether that's a collaborative process or whether it's very much a one-way process uh, from the top down when you're collaborative, you learn that um, you actually can find out more about your staff and your team, what their needs are, what they're worried about. Um, when you find out what they are thinking about and what their motivations are, you can get so much more out of people um, and they're happier too. So hopefully people will start to realize that those leadership styles are actually going to get better results. One of my girlfriends, she has a son, he's highly autistic. And I think that, you know, she's working with the the psychologist to help him, you know, learn life skills and those types of things. But she was just saying that she's worried about like his employment in the future. And if, and if there is a possibility of like getting a job and what would that job and career look like? So do you think there could be like an education piece around uh, helping parents that perhaps STEM is a great subject for, for people that are on the, on the autistic spectrum to be like, you know, they're not, they can actually do really, really well in a career because it does require a lot of focus and, and attention in terms of focusing on the details. So do you think that there is education around that just to, to give parents that, I would say that at ease that they, they know that, their child does have a future in a particular career and not to sort of just be written off too too early on. Yeah, I think you have to be careful not to fall in to any traps, you know, because people um, on the autistic spectrum are very, very different, um, you know, and everyone has a different presentation and, and different mm-hmm. um, sort of skills and interests. And, and um, that is the same with anyone in, in the whole population. Um, right. So I think what we what we do need to do, though, is to definitely educate people yeah. in, in, in the workplace in um, in charge of education, that those needs um, are really able to be accommodated in workplaces yeah. and in the way we assess people's performance. If we can move to a, a better leadership style across across the board um, and take into account people's differences a little bit more and maybe accommodate people's uh, unique needs, whatever those are, mm. then we can stop putting people in boxes. And I think, again, that that's um, there may be some levels of truth around um, attention to detail with many people with mm-hmm. autism or, you know, other traits which perhaps are associated with um, autism. But I think that really um, ignores the fact that there is a, a spectrum, a huge spectrum of um, differences between people generally. And, um, you know, if we accommodate all of those and don't put up barriers and st- sort of strict walls between people, um, that's going to help people across the board and people with disabilities um, mm-hmm. across the board too. No, I love that. And I, no, I really I really appreciate you um, shedding a little light on that because I think that's a really important thing for people listening to remember 
One of the things I'd like to sort of just explore and go back on a little bit is the cultural side of things. Now, I think we touched about touched on this earlier in the interview. Uh, you mentioned India and Asia. So I'm really keen from your experience, what are other countries doing in terms of their approach towards encouraging more women into STEM that we uh, as Australian citizens can really learn to adopt ourselves in terms of our own organisations? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of great case studies from around the world. Firstly, um, in education, sort of early childhood and primary education, Scotland uh, and the parts of the other parts of the UK too are, are doing great things, um, attempting to sort of squash gender stereotypes in schools. So they're doing a lot of work um, with a group of schools um, and that's taking a lot of sort of commitment and extra work to bring teachers along on the journey. But they're trying to in, uh, create inclusive classrooms and particularly inclusive play and learning experiences um, and linking that to sort of gender agnostic careers advice to try to reduce um, the stereotypes uh, around gender and jobs. So reducing that sort of participation gap and that, that expectation gap too. It's a lot of work um, and it, it's, it takes a considerable commitment over several years, but the results are, um, are quite interesting. And um, I can sort of see that, um, you know, if that was a part of um, the country's education policy as a whole, you would make a tremendous difference, not just in, um, you know, participation in different subjects, but also on re um, reducing violence against women and, and sexual harassment and, and bullying and that sort of thing. So I think um, that that's a wonderful thing to do, um, big commitment um, and, a, and a big ask for a nation to do. But um, luckily, some people are taking that on. Um Austria has um, launched some interesting awareness raising campaigns. I, I visited Europe um, just over a year and a half ago now when we could all travel mm -hmm. and um, travelled around Europe actually learning from different countries and what they were doing for women in STEM. Um, Austria had this great campaign around the roles of men and women in parenting at home. So it was sort of video campaigns, but it was a really interesting angle about getting more men to see themselves as, as parents and carers. Um, because if we don't change the fact that women do vastly more unpaid work at home, both housework and caring for uh, both children and elders, we, we will never shift the dial. That's a huge part um, of the reason why um, male-female couples choose to have the woman staying at home looking after kids. So that coupled with the lack of um, equal parental leave for men, um, we're not going to shift the dial. If we if those things remain, so that's a, a nice way to sort of sort of tackle those gender stereotypes. Uh, in terms of practical stuff, um, we've taken the lead in Australia from the UK, who have this um, program called the Athena Swan Charter. It's essentially a set of principles um, to create more equitable workplaces. So it's it's like a, an award scheme, really. You sign up um, your organisation. It works across the higher education and research sector, and and you look and you audit um, at your own your own organisation. You look at your organisation and audit um, in terms of gender and um, position in the organisation. Things like how much people get paid, um, how senior their levels are, um, and, and do they experience um, a safe and comfortable workplace? And then you you write an action plan for your own organisation and you monitor, track data. Uh, and you try and improve. And that's that's a wonderful thing. That's um, actually spread to the US and Canada um, and to Australia now. We, we have um, this scheme working very hard and um, it's spreading hopefully to New Zealand as well. So it's a really, really good way for organisations to simply audit themselves. Um, most organisations have to report to things like the Workplace Gender Equality Agency anyway. Um, and organisations in Victoria now will have to um, do sort of gender reporting um, as the new, um, I guess, Equal Rights um, Act comes in this March. So there'll be a lot more reporting, but hopefully not just a reporting burden, but something useful that organisations can do to identify and then take steps to improve um, how they're going. In terms of the campaign that you were just discussing in Austria, which I, which I really, really liked, do you, how far away do you think we are as Australians 
I'm shifting the dial. Are we like are we close or am I being too optimistic? I think there's a few Australias. Um, it depends who you talk to, depends what circles you're in as to how much um, overt sexism you you come across in everyday life. Um, and a lot of people high up in organisations in particular are quite shielded from um, the attitudes that, that many others are um, coming across. So I think that's, that's really one of the problems. And we've seen recently, um, you know, reports from... Uh, women and their experiences um, at school of being, you know, sexually harassed or assaulted, it absolutely shocks adults because they, they're they not there and they don't see this sort of behaviour. Mm. It's the same in the workforce where, um, you know, women are seeing everyday sexism, they're experiencing being ignored or p- talked down to. Mm-hmm. I've experienced so many times, um, it doesn't happen to me because I'm I'm very forward and make sure I, I put myself at the front, but... Um, you know, a lot of women, um, when people are getting introduced in a room, um, they don't get their hands sh- shook. You know, they, it, it's, mm. um, it's just wow. you see little things a lot, and it's like, oh, that's probably just the secretary. And you know, this happens Had so much. That just Had everyday that sexism. Um, go and get us a cup of tea, love. You know, that sort of attitude. So, it's very, very good in some places where you you. You don't notice um, these things and then you start to notice. And then as you go through life and go through your career, you notice it more and more. And I think um, that there is work to do is the, the short answer to your question. Um, and it's on all of us to to create environments in workplaces whereby you can raise issues and you can raise them immediately. You raise them in the meeting when someone says something oh, that's just Dave, that's just what Dave does. We don't accept those things. Um, Mm -hmm. The most senior person in the room should be saying, Dave, that's not on, in front of everyone immediately. Mm. That's how you stop it. It's very simple and it just takes a little bit of guts and courage from leaders um, and that's what we need to try and encourage. Why wouldn't someone shake someone's hand though? Like I'm just perplexed by that. So I just don't understand that in terms of, like not even like just removing gender, like like why wouldn't you? I don't, I don't understand like why someone would do they is it do they think that that person is not worthy of a handshake or I think it's part of the hierarchy. So when you go to a new you know a, a meeting with a, an organisation, you you shake the hand of the CEO first, and then perhaps the the more senior members, and and you get down the line of um yeah responsibility, and sometimes at the bottom there's just a bunch of people who just get ignored and. And I've, I've witnessed that so many times. It's, uh, I think, very disrespectful generally. Mm, and um, yeah. so often it's the women who are sitting at the outside of the table, not on the board table, on the chairs behind it, or, um, you know, essentially getting ignored and not not even having their voices heard. Um, you know, that's, that, that's not ideal. And that's not really the way to create collaborative um, conversations. On the plus side, I know that there are a lot of men that ask me and that are really curious about getting more women into the field. So I'd love to ask you, Lisa, how would you advise or respond to an organisation looking to run a campaign to attract more women into their company? Because it's something that a lot of people do ask. They've tried different things. I don't know if it's one singular, this is what you should do and it's going to get you the outcome, but I'm curious to sort of explore this a little bit more with you just to give people perhaps uh, some insights if they're listening on, on how they could go about ad- adapting some of your strategies. Mm. It's, a, it's a long game thing. I mean, it's just like really trying to find water in a desert sometimes, trying to find women who are skilled and trained in particular fields because of the the gaps in education as, as I've alluded to so it, it is the long game and you think how do you create a pipeline as an organization a sustainable um, plan for your organization to create a pipeline of skilled workers how do you um, go about doing that well you've got to first make sure your workplace is safe and isn't toxic or draining for women who are there. Otherwise, you'll spend all this money on recruiting women, but you'll fail to retain them and pro- progress them. They'll just leave because they, they hate working there. So you've got to start with workplace audit. Um, what do the cold, hard stats say about the experience of women in your workplace 
and you you know that by asking them and you ask them anonymously do women receive the same starting salary as men get the stats do the do the work do they progress at equal rates through the organization do they get positions of responsibility and growth opportunities in your organization are they experiencing negative factors like hostile working culture or sexual harassment and you've got to eliminate those things as part of this work it's not just doing a shiny campaign and saying come and work for us because because they'll leave if you don't have a nice place to work second Mm -hmm. thing is um painting a picture i suppose you might think about someone who's done this quite um effectively recently is um army and defense you you see their ads on tv and they, you'll notice they're very multicultural adverts. They're very mm. uh, women heavy compared to the actual workforce. Um, and they're encouraging women to become engineers in the army or, um, you know, have these technical roles. And they paint a picture uh, of a workplace. They they actually work hard to, to create um, a better workplace. And they're doing that work inside army as well. But they're also doing the work outside to say, here's a picture of what you could be, what you could do, um, whether or not you're kind of person that wants to join army or not. Um, those adverts are, are quite um, exhilarating. They show mm. people traveling on ships and airplanes and helping people in developing countries and doing the sorts of things that people are attracted to. So that's what you've got to do. You've got to paint a picture why and tell a story. Why would you want to work here? Not just because we have beanbags and, you know, puppies are allowed, but mm-hmm. also the, 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 the important things like what's our culture like and why do we exist? What are we trying to achieve and what is our mission mm-hmm. and how does that help humanity? You've got to, you've got to really tell that story too. Mm-hmm. No, I no, I really love everything you're saying, and I think having a vision. I think sometimes a lot of people they don't think like that if they are sort of in a, a middle management role, perhaps. One of the things that I read a report as well, and I can't remember which one it was, but there are stats around women leaving the cybersecurity industry because of how they were treated by men, and it was quite high. And so. What do you? What is your sort of response on how to manage that? Because on one hand they're saying we want more women in, but then they can't even retain the women that they've got because of how they're being treated, and you know there's a range of different things as to why that they were leaving. Probably pay and career progression and being patronised or whatever, or degraded or whatever it was. Like I'm just curious on we're saying one thing, but then we can't keep the current people that we've got. So it's sort of it feels like we're it's the egg, the chicken and the egg sort of situation. Yeah, uh, you, spot on. I mean, I've worked in in workplaces that feel toxic, and um, a lot of women leave those workplaces uh, because they don't feel valued and they don't feel listened to. Uh, this is a really bad thing for business if you're just looking at business, um, and it's a really bad thing for those people involved as well. But if you are a senior leader, um, you, you're hemorrhaging talent and money there. Mm. Um, and, and there really is a big problem with leadership um, if your workplace has a poor culture. Firstly, you don't have control over um, every single person, what they think and what they do, but you mm. do have control over your responses to that. And the culture and um, the expectations and accountabilities um, that you um, ask your managers to sort of create in the workplace. So what are the accountabilities of your managers around um, retention, for example? Do you track um, data around who's leaving? Do you do exit interviews? Do you ask people on in annual surveys how they feel about the workforce and do you gender disaggregate the data? If you're not doing these basic things, there really is no helping you. So it really is about being a scientist, um, measuring stuff, keeping an eye on your workforce and um, seeing how they're feeling, how they're behaving, and also how you're behaving to them. Um, are you progressing them? Are you retaining them? Um, attracting people is is a very important part um, you know, of, of creating a business, but you are completely right. If you don't retain them, um, the money is going, the talent is going, and it's all draining out of your company. 
Mm, no, you're absolutely spot on when you say that. So just lastly, to wrap up our interview, because I've, I've just I've just loved everything that you're saying, and I think it's just an interview that I've wanted to do for a while uh, because I think it is important. People don't have the answers, and I think we're still trying to work it out. But I know that you're working on the new initiative called Future You. So I'm keen to understand like what it is and what can what can we sort of see come out of this initiative. Yeah, it's a, a new digital awareness raising initiative. So it's a, it's a national initiative. Um, and it was funded through the um, Commonwealth budget a couple of years ago. So we've got money for three years, but it, it just launched in October last year. So we've um, got our first um, results from our evaluation data. It's very exciting. What we're trying to do with this campaign is um, create a digital campaign that excites um children aged 8 to 12 and their parents um, engages them in STEM characters. These are actually animated characters and we have 12 of them. They're from very um, different STEM roles. They're very diverse, um, different genders um, and uh, kids uh, love them. A lot of uh, the characters are um, really motivated by helping the world or changing the world in some positive way. Um, There are animations, songs, and we've got games as well. So you can take part in different industries from mining for um, precious metals to, you know, the engineering of that uh, to sort of farming and using technologies to um, create circuits and things. So there's lots and lots of cool stuff. There's a careers quiz and it's essentially an online platform Um, digital campaign. Now, since October, 2.3 million kids and their parents um, between the ages of eight and 12 have seen the campaign. So that's a huge number. And there's been a significant shift in the number of kids who've seen the campaign who are very interested in STEM jobs. So before they saw the campaign, only 20% of girls said they're very interested in STEM jobs. After the campaign, 68% of girls said they were very interested in STEM jobs. That's huge. That's more than two-thirds of girls. Mm. Really interested, really engaged. Um, and, and amongst boys, similarly, um, those numbers increased, not quite as much as girls because the boys' baseline was a lot higher. So it's increasing the understanding of STEM careers amongst young people and modern STEM careers, not just the stereotypes of mm. like a nerd in a lab coat or um, mm-hmm. We've actually got a character who's a gamer um, and oh, she right. games for um, people with disabilities. And, you know, it's really exciting. And kids are getting some great sort of recognition of these characters. And it's reducing gender stereotypes about STEM careers mm-hmm. and also in introducing some of the um, a better understanding, I guess, of some of the, the lesser known careers. So in, increasing those um familiarities, I guess, with with um, different careers. So we're going on with our campaign for the next um, two years. We're creating mm-hmm. new characters. We've got a competition for kids to draw their own character, which will be brought Ooh. to life in the campaign. That is very exciting. Can't wait to see those. And um, we want to really reflect um, the this jobs of the future that the kids will need to have. Um, and I'm very excited about Future You. And, of course, I'm, I'm planning this this careers um, book as well so there'll be there'll be lots and lots coming out in the next couple of years no I absolutely love that and I think I wish I wish when I was a kid I had something like this implemented so it would have probably driven me uh, into this industry sooner because I would have had exposure so I really appreciate that and uh, for me personally and um, yeah I really love the idea of the little characters and yeah it sounds um, it sounds incredibly creative but also paints the right picture that we're trying to tell in a way that makes sense to, to kids. That's it that's all about getting the kids in and you know asking the right questions and also changing their parents ideas because so often parents will encourage kids who are very academically minded into particular subjects if your kid's doing really really well at school getting top grades what do you say to them you'd be a doctor or a lawyer no we want we need stem qualified workers too we do need doctors we do need lawyers (laughs) but we also need a lot of other things in this country and there are other great high-paid jobs if that's what floats your boat um, but otherwise, you know, the the way that kids can get engaged um, with these different careers and understand what they mean and understand their influence on the world, um, hopefully that's the hook. 
No, I love that. I, no, I really love that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. I really have appreciated our chat. Uh, you've shared uh, an amazing wealth of knowledge that I, myself that I was, you know, writing down a lot of the things that you were saying, and I'm sure that our listeners um, are doing so as well. If people have a question for you that I did not ask you today, what would be the best way to potentially get in contact with you? Well, I've got lots of info and contact stuff on my website, lisaharveysmith.com, mm-hmm. um, and also the Women in STEM Ambassador website, womeninstem.org.au is a great place to go for that stuff. Um, if you want to contact me, though, just tweet me, uh, Lisa Harvey Smith, and I'm on Instagram and you know Facebook and all the old stuff too. Really appreciate the time, Lisa. And I'd love to get you back because this has been an awesome interview. It's been great fun. Thanks very much. And uh, all the best to the listeners. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to KB Cast, the cybersecurity podcast for executives. We always value your support and would love it if you could leave us a review or a comment on your platform of choice, iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And that's always appreciated. Till next time.